Northern Easter literally refers to the time of year in the spring when the days become longer than the nights. But for the person who knows Jesus Christ, Easter means a lot more than that. It means that even though Jesus died, salvation didn't. Even though Jesus was buried, hope wasn't. Because Jesus is alive. Easter means there is forgiveness for my failures, grace for my guilt, and mercy for my misery. Easter means that the pain and the silence of living in a Saturday world isn't purposeless and it isn't permanent. Easter means that I can't out the grace of God and I can't outrun the reach of God. It means that Jesus is King, light overcomes darkness, justice will win, and brokenness will be broken. Easter means that the scars on the hands of Jesus are telling a story of victory, not defeat. And the same is true for me. It means that I am not alone, not ashamed, not forgotten, and not forsaken. It means that the rain and the storms and the wind and the waves of this world will not have the last word because my future is a resurrected body with the resurrected Jesus on a resurrected earth. Easter means that I can join with a choir of saints and angels singing, Oh death, where is your victory? Oh grave, where is your sting? Oh hell, where is your song? Easter means that as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed my transgressions from me. And as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for me. Easter means that even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, because you are with me. Thank you.
Happy Easter, City Hill. He is risen. Uh, I, I didn't really hear you there. Um, okay, so I, let's try it again. When I say he is risen, I need you to shout it out, wake up the neighbors, proclaim the correct answer, the answer that has been proclaimed through the ages, across the nations. Together we declare, He is risen indeed. Are you ready? He is risen. He is risen indeed. All right, now tell somebody beside you, He is risen. Tell them, He is risen indeed. Praise the Lord. Today is Easter morning, and we are so glad that you've joined us here at City Hill Church. Whether you've joined us by Facebook or on our YouTube channel or on the City Hill webpage, we are glad that you've joined us together. You know, God, one of the things we love about him is that he is omnipresent. And what that means is that God's everywhere. That means he's here with us. He's there with you in your homes. And together this morning, we want to worship the risen Lord. I also wanted to give a shout out. Some people who started early this morning at 6 a.m., some of you brave souls joined us for a sunrise drive through service. And right here in our parking lot at City Hill, gathered together to sing and praise as the sun was coming up here over Eden Prairie to praise the risen Lord. And I, I thank you, Dan Craw, for our great breakfast you provided for us at the wee hours of the morning. The beauty is that together this morning, on Easter morning, we are together to worship Jesus and thank God for the incredible miracle of the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's worship together this morning.
for a time our church can come together and worship you and celebrate you on this Easter, God. We pray that this time would bless your name, Lord, and unite us all together from all of our homes. In Jesus' precious name we say, amen. So if you're a child and you've heard me say this in the last couple of weeks, I want you to come as close to your screen as you can because um, our awesome Pastor Janet has a great word for you today. Good morning, City Hill kids. Happy Easter. What do you have planned for today? Maybe you dyed some Easter eggs like these that you're going to hide inside your house, outside your house. Where are you gonna hide them? I don't know. Do you have some other fun game plans or maybe some very fun food to eat with some nice fun candies? Woo! Whatever you have planned, I hope that you will spend some time with your family watching the Bible story videos that I sent to you because today's Bible story is all about Easter and Easter is the reason that we follow Jesus and that we can be his friends forever. You see, Jesus said that he was going away but that he would come back and then he died. His friends were so very sad and confused. But then three days later, he did come back, just like he said he would. And so today we are celebrating the truth that Jesus is alive. Whatever you do today, I want you to take a moment and say together, Jesus is alive. And then you can answer, yes, he is alive. Can we try that? I'm going to say Jesus is alive, and I want to hear you holler, yes, he is alive. Here we go. Jesus is alive. Yes, he is alive. So celebrate big at home and make sure you tell someone Jesus is alive. Well, thanks, Janet, for that video. We have such great kids here at City Hill. It's great to see them loving the Lord and growing in the ways of God. This morning, we want to take our virtual City Hill offering. And on the screen will be projected some different ways that you can give. We can text. You can give online. There's different options for you. And you know, for me... I've decided to give my offering on a weekly basis as a online giving. And you know, when I first started doing that, I got to tell you, it felt a little bit different to me. It felt a little strange because I'm so used to being in the church service and the offering comes by and putting your check in the offering as a part of our weekly worship. But when I took a good look at what it was for me to give it online, to me it was an act of faith. It was saying, I'm going to give of my first fruits. I'm not going to look at my account at the end of the month or the end of the week and say, how much do I have left to give to the Lord? But I'm going to give it right off the top as a, as a declaration that God is good and that God is my provider and I can trust him and I want to obey him with every aspect of my life. And so I encourage you in these times, and actually at any time, it's good to set up your giving to be a regular 
part of a discipline and of your commitment in following the Lord. So I encourage you to do that even as we worship together this morning. And you know, anytime we give to the Lord, it's an act of worship. Sometimes worship we think of as just here with the band, and that's a wonderful part of worship. But worship is also giving of our funds. And when we do that, it's an act of worship and it's an act of faith. So let's pray together this morning. Let's just declare that God is who he says he is and he'll provide for us as we walk in proper obedience to his word. Let's pray together over our morning offering. Jesus, I thank you that you are good. We recognize you this morning as our provider, even in, maybe especially in these difficult times. God, you have always been faithful to us. And pray, Lord, that you would take the offerings that we give you today, that as you return some of what you have so generously given to us, we return it back to you as an act of faith. And Father, I also pray for those who are struggling financially. We pray for those who have lost jobs or have decreased in income. God, show yourself faithful. Provide each and everything they need. We look to you, Lord Jesus. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Amen. morning, it is my joy and privilege to welcome to the virtual City Hill pulpit a minister of the gospel, a man who grew up here in Minnesota and is a best-known author who writes on the freedom we have in Christ, how to walk in that freedom. So this morning we have with us Neil T. Anderson. Neil comes to us from Nashville and he brings us a word this morning about how God has called us, especially on this Easter morning, to walk without fear, that God has brought us victory over fear. So let's welcome to our pulpit this morning, Neil T. Anderson. Good morning, City Hill Church, Pastor Kent, and this beautiful Easter day, at least here in Franklin, Tennessee. I was supposed to be there with you all this morning, but uh, a little virus got in the way. But uh, for us, it's a gorgeous day here. And uh, it's such a delight to spend this time with you, to be uh, to share the message of God's grace. Most people probably listening right now aren't aware of the fact that I'm a fellow Minnesotan. I was born and raised in the little farming community of Jackson, Minnesota. I uh, worked for Honeywell at the... Uh, Stenway Ridge, uh, the plant at Honeywell in, uh, uh, gosh, New Brighton. 
And uh, I have such great memories of the time that I lived in Minnesota. I actually worked on the Apollo Space Program back in the 1960s. And last year we celebrated our 50th anniversary. And what a memory experience that was for me because we had the guidance system for the lunar lander. And uh, those days, you know, were vivid in my memory last uh, summer as we were celebrating that. I also remember at that time that we were uh, a part of dealing with the Hubble telescope. And uh, at that time, it went into space and it didn't work and they had to fix it in space. That was an incredible uh, feat of engineering and, and dareness, to be honest with you. But up until that time, I mean, we look at the universe and all we could see was our galaxy. And now, because of the Hubble telescope, you can peer into space and see galaxies that are numerous and, and far larger than ours and supernovas and stars that dwarf our star. And the Bible begins that God created the heavens and the earth. But all of that universe that we just sit in awe at and just it goes beyond our ability to comprehend is all lifeless, devoid of life, and didn't come from any pre-existing matter. On the other hand, the Creator is eternal and living, the mind behind the universe. In this dinky little planet, Earth, He created biological life. The birds of the sky, the beasts of the field, the fish of the sea, all of that is actually destined to die. If it didn't have some means by which it could uh, propagate a species, it would just die off. And so it seeds for the next generation. And then God introduced something totally unique, totally new into the universe. He took some dust and breathed into it the breath of life. And Adam became a living being. Nowhere else had that existed. Adam was alive. But he was alive in two ways. First of all, he was physically alive. That means his soul was in union with his body. What happens when we die physically? Absent from the body, present with the Lord. Death is to means to separate, whereas life means to be in union with. But he was also spiritually alive. That meant his soul was in union with God. His body was a temple of God. Had he eaten from the tree of life, I believe he could have lived forever. At least that was the implication. But if he ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, on that day he would surely die. Well, he ate and he died. He didn't die physically. He died spiritually. In fact, he lived over 900 years. Physical death would be a consequence of that as well. But he died spiritually. He was separated from God. And the first emotion he expressed was, I was afraid. What was he afraid of? There was nothing in the garden at that time to be uh, afraid of. God's presence even was there, even though his soul was not in union with that. Uh, he had no neurological problems that required medication. He had no flesh patterns to crucify. What was he afraid of? That fear is what I call a primordial fear. It is the basis of all other fears, was the absence of, of life and the absence of that life just permeated all of the culture that existed from that time on after Adam and Eve everybody is born physically alive but spiritually dead Ephesians 2 1 says having been born dead not stillborn but born physically but spiritually dead, separated from God 
All you have to do is get to Genesis chapter 6, and, and God looked down and saw that evil was the intent of everybody's heart and probably would have destroyed creation at that time, except he found one man, Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. <clears throat> but think about that just for a moment. Have you ever seen any of these programs that talk about archaeological digs and early civilizations? They all had some kind of an altar and a sacrificial system. All of them were driven by fear. Somehow or another, they knew that some kind of a sacrifice had to be in place in order for them to reconnect again with that source of life. But that permeated our culture. And fear to this day is the number one psychological problem of the world. And need I say to you that the coronavirus is doing nothing but exacerbating that. Fear is an interesting thing. The number one commandment in Scripture actually is fear not. Over 400 times, I believe, somebody counted. But telling somebody to don't be afraid really doesn't work. Anxiety disorders include fear and then anxiety and panic attacks. Anxiety is like fear without an adequate cause. People are fearful because they don't know. The Lord provides a pretty adequate answer to that in the Sermon on the Mount. He said, don't worry about tomorrow. Actually, what the term means, don't be double-minded. Don't be double minded. You know, get back to a single focus. You know, if I take care of the lilies of the field, the birds of the sky, are you not worth much more than they are to me? So seek ye first the kingdom of God. And that really is, you know, the answer that we have as Christians for this incredible crisis that's going on around the world as I speak right now. Uh, I said, but but fear is different because fear actually has <clears throat> an object to it. In fact, we categorize fear by the object of our fear. Uh, claustrophobia is a fear of enclosed places. Arachnophobia is a fear of spiders. You probably saw the movie. And uh, now, in order for a fear object to be legitimate, it has to have two attributes. I have to somehow perceive it. And somehow it has to be potent. It has to be eminent and potent. I'm using these words very carefully. Uh, <clears throat> now, fear itself and anxiety is kind of a God-given thing. In fact, of the 25 uses of the word anxiety in the New Testament, five are actually positive. If your teenager is two hours late, you should feel a little anxious. The answer is to pray. Uh, if you're anxious about an exam tomorrow, the answer is to study. And so it's kind of normal to have that. That's why... Mental health experts say you're, you're mentally healthy if you're relatively free of anxiety. Fear is different, though, because fear has that object. Uh, now, in order for that fear object to be legitimate, it has to have those two attributes. Some are eminent, some are potent. Anytime my physical or psychological safety is threatened, fear is what I should experience. It's kind of for our survival. Even animals have it, or they'd all be roadkill. Uh, for instance... <clears throat> I don't like rattlesnakes, I'll be honest with you. Uh, but right now, I got zero fear of rattlesnakes. Why not? There's none here. Now, if you were to throw one of those babies in and it was eminent and potent, I'd be off this camera in a second. Now, let's suppose that you threw one in here and it was dead, provided I was sure it was dead. I'd probably still kick it just a little bit to make sure. <laughs> Here's the point. All you have to do is to remove just one of those attributes, and it no longer functions as a fear object. Now, there's a learned aspect of this as well. 
On that little farm I grew up in Jackson, Minnesota, we had garter snakes. They were not poisonous. Um, basically, they're harmless. Uh, but snakes kind of carry this image in a lot of people's mind and create a lot of fear for people. And some of it isn't really warranted because that little garter snake is just like a big worm, actually. And so we would go over and pick it up. Now, suppose some nice mother has a fenced-in backyard there in Minneapolis, and, and they have a two-year-old out playing out back, and, and they see a little garter snake going along. Chances are that two-year-old will go up and pick up that snake. What would his mother do? Freak out. And uh, what would a zoologist do? Well, they would have no fear of it whatsoever because knowledge. It's kind of one of those things that there's an aspect of fear where it is learned. Uh, <clears throat> You fall off a chair when you're yelling, you learn to respect heights. You, you burn yourself, you learn to respect fire. So there's a learned aspect of it. Phobias are irrational fears. Uh, they're irrational. It tells you that there's something you're believing that's not true. And if you don't get at the lie that's behind it, then truth of the matter is you'll never resolve that. Uh, but, but fear basically has three major objects. Everything else is kind of a subcategory of three major issues. Fear of death, fear of people, and fear of Satan. Uh, let's look at those for a moment. Let's look at death, physical death now. I'm not talking about your eternal life, but, but your physical life. Uh, God has removed one of those attributes. Now it's appointed unto every man that one day we shall die and then come to judgment. So death is imminent. But for a believer, it's no longer potent. Where, O oh, death, is your sting? Where is your victory? Paul says, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. It's like asking a person during this corona crisis that we're in right now, what's the worst thing that could happen to it? God, I could physically die from this. Well, absent from the body, present with the Lord. No more pain, no more, no more problems. Now, that's not a license to commit suicide because it's required of God that we be a good steward of this life that God has entrusted to us. But the person who's really free from the fear of physical death today is really free to live. It's not going to control my life. It's not going to determine what I do. Um, my life could be gone tomorrow, but truth is, my eternal life will remain with me. Fear of man is the other big one that people obviously struggle with. Uh, now, what power does he have over you? See, that's the question. We're dealing with humanity all around us today, and we have this kind of a world thing going on we've never experienced before of keep your distance from other people for fear of catching that, that virus. But that's not the major fear that we're dealing with. People are afraid of their boss, afraid of their parents, afraid of bullies in the neighborhood. Uh, <clears throat> but what power do they have? Well, essentially, the only power they have is the power that you give to them. Uh, Jesus is rather emphatic about that. Let me just quote something in, in uh, Matthew. He says, And do not fear those who cure the body, but cannot cure, kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Uh, yeah, somebody could shoot me tomorrow. I could die in an automobile accident. That is really not to be fear. Man is not the fear object because fear is a powerful, powerful controller. And if, if people can control you by fear, and a lot of people do, sometimes we control our kids by fear. Sometimes we control our employees by fear. Not healthy. But let's say you have a, a boss that just totally intimidates you. What power does he have over you? Well, I guess he can fire you. 
How would you solve that? Quit. No, don't do that. But be willing to. There's, there's the, the subtle issue behind that. Now, let's suppose you go to work Monday morning and that boss is there and he's this intimidating person and, and you're kind of afraid around him and he says something and you jump and then you go to the lunchroom, but he's not there. It's like a little sanctuary for you. And so you go in there and you start talking about, you know, and uh, your back's to the door and your friends are going, <laughs> what power does he have over you? Only what you give him. Suppose he says, tell so-and-so I'm, I'm going to be late because I, I'm, I'm busy doing something else. And, and uh, what he just asked you to do is lie for me. Now, if you're a strong Christian, you're going to say, you know what, sir? I want to be the best employee I can be for you, but I can't lie for you. Well, I'll get somebody else that will then. Well, sir, that's your choice. Now, if you lose your job because you're living a righteous life, trust God he has something better for you than that. Uh, <clears throat> I know this is not an easy thing to say for some people in situations where people around you are terrorizing you, but the truth of the matter is, nobody else has the right to determine who you are or to control your life. The ultimate fear object we'll get to in a moment is really God, not man. Uh, the third thing is, is interesting, is the fear of Satan. Now in the fall, what happened? Jesus said that Satan became the ruler of this world. God had given this dominion to Adam. He was to rule over the birds of the sky, the beasts of the field, the fish of the sea. But when he sinned, he forfeited that, and Satan became the rebel holder of authority. And the whole world, to this day, lies in the power of the evil one. He's deceived the whole world world. It's in that setting that really Christ came back because one of the things he did was to, was to come back to undo the works of Satan. First John chapter 3 verse 8. Now people listen to me. That is the gospel the world is waiting to hear. Most believers around the world are only really living functionally under a third of the gospel. We present Jesus as the Messiah who came to die for our sins and if we believe in him and put our trust in him, and when we die, we'll get to go to heaven. That sounds okay, but actually, people would take that to mean that eternal life is something I get when I die. That is not true. He who has the Son has the life. He who doesn't have the Son doesn't have the life. If you want to understand the whole gospel, it begins with Good Friday and forgiveness that Christ died for our sins. But for some people, that's the whole gospel. That's the whole reason Jesus came back and he just died for my sins. And I said, that is totally incomplete. Thank God for Good Friday because it was that sin that separated me from God. But what Jesus came to do was to give us life. It's the resurrection. Now, even if you have that, that's only two-thirds of the gospel. The third part of the gospel is he came to undo the works of Satan. The number one religious orientation of the world is spiritism. Any missiologist will tell you that. You go to Latin America and Africa and Asia and all those places, they're worshiping idols and they're contacting their shamans and their witch doctors and leaving little baskets of fruit around to appease the deities. And we have the privilege to go to those countries and say Jesus has disarmed them and defeated them. In Christ, you have authority over them. Folks, that's just as much a part of the gospel as the fact that your sins are forgiven. And that's the gospel they're waiting to hear 
because they're just paralyzed by fear all over this world. There's not a verse in the Bible where we're to fear Satan. He's roaring around like hungry lions, seeking for someone to devour, but he's disarmed. Colossians chapter 2 is very clear. He is disarmed. He came to undo the works of Satan. It's kind of like riding uh, two kids in the back of a car and the window's open and suddenly a bee comes in. And the kid, Mom, Dad, there's a bee in the car. And Dad reaches back with his hand and, and, uh, and grabs the bee in his hand and the stinger goes out of that bee into his hand. And then he released it. And the kids say, the bee's here. The, beer, the bees are here. And Dad says, Kids, look at my hand. The stinger's in my hand. And Jesus is saying, look at my side. Look at my hands. Look at my feet. I took the sting. Thank God for that. That's the gospel much of this world is waiting to hear. And it is just as important here as it is in the third world. Now, why is... The fear of God, the beginning of wisdom. How is it the one fear that can expel all other fears? Even though Satan is still eminent, he's really no longer potent. So how does he control this whole world? Uh, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. He deceives the whole world, according to Revelation. All the world is deceived. That's why it's truth that sets us free. That's why when we put on the armor of God, the first thing you do is you gird our loins with truth. If you know the truth, the truth will set you free. And the truth that he's talking about is not just this book. It's Jesus himself. He is the truth. And he is the word. But God is the ultimate object for our fear because he is both impotent and eminent and present all the time, omnipresent. Those two attributes make him the ultimate object of our fear. It's really a reverence for us. The reason we worship God is not because we need to tell God who he is. God is totally sufficient within himself. Worshiping God is describing to him his divine attributes. And the more we keep those in our mind, the more we realize that God is right now present, no matter where I go, even show behold, God is there. My God will never leave me nor forsake me, and he's all-powerful. Nothing can happen to me in the providential care of God that God doesn't allow uh, for my sake or for, for all of eternity. There's a passage in Isaiah that's so clear. Let me just read it to you. For the Lord spoke thus to me with his strong arm. Do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy, and do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread, but the Lord of hosts, him you shall have regard as holy. Him you shall, you shall fear. Let him be your dread. And then he will become a sanctuary. I'm sure you're sitting now in a very fine building. But it is not a sanctuary. Unfortunately, we've named it that. But the only sanctuary we have is in Christ. Now, if we had a way to solve those fears. And by the way, in my book on fear, <clears throat> every fear you can name. Look for those two attributes and find which one is no longer there. It's no longer eminent and it's no longer potent and the fear will die away. You have to find the lie behind it. And that's all included in our steps to freedom in Christ. Now, how did we begin this talk? In the beginning, God 
Let's start again, people. John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And in Him was the life, and the life was the light in the world. What Adam and Eve lost was life. What Jesus came to give us was life. And the Word became flesh and dwelt amongst us. That must have blown the minds of the people at that time. Word, Lagos. That was what they debated on Mars Hills. That was what the highest of philosophical reasoning and notion. That's what they were arguing and discussing about and, and philosophizing about. But to say that the Word had become flesh was incarnate, was personal. He is the Word. He is the truth. Even Hebrews, the Word of God is sharper than a two-edged sword, able to divide asunder the body, both joint, spare, and moral, is really a reference to Christ. You go back and look at Hebrews. He's talking about Jesus greater than Moses and greater than Aaron. This book doesn't judge the thoughts and intentions of my heart. God does himself. He is the word. He is the truth. And in him was the life. The Bible refers to him as the last Adam. The first Adam was born physically and spiritually alive. Jesus, in the incarnation, was physically and spiritually alive. Fully God, fully man. In him was the life. The whole gospel means that that life that he has given to me, which he gave to Adam in the beginning, means that my soul is in union with God. That is most often conveyed in their epistles as being in Christ or in him or in the beloved. Just read chapter 1 of Ephesians and see how many times in him, in Christ, or in the beloved occurred. 40 times in six chapters. It's talking about this incredible position and identity that we have in Christ. As many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. The most important thing you can call God is our Father. I know that because that's how the Lord taught us to pray. Paul's whole theology is rooted right there. That we have to be firmly rooted in him in order to be built up in him, in order to live in him. You have to be connected to the source of the vine. And if you bind Christ, you'll bear much fruit. And by this is my Father glorified, that we bear much fruit. But so we got to bear fruit. Actually, you don't. You have to abide in Christ. If you abide in Christ, you will bear fruit. The fruit is just the evidence that you're abiding in Christ. When I look at the, the vast ocean of eternity, there was one little tidal wave of time. It began with the incarnation, when the Word became flesh, when God incarnate took on the form of a man. People, that has to be the, the most sternest possible rebuke of man's arrogance and pride. For you and me to become a slug, to save a slug, doesn't even remotely compare to Almighty God taking on the form of a man. At the end of, end of that little tidal wave is the crucifixion, which has to be the sternest possible rebuke 
to man's selfishness and unkindness and unwillingness to serve. Everybody knows John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. But maybe the key to John 3.16 is 1 John 3.16. We know love by this. He laid down his life for us. We ought to lay down our life for a brethren. You realize right now we have doctors and nurses doing that. People voluntarily putting themselves in harm's way as our military and our police have been doing that for a long time. For us, for our protection, our safety. Pray for them. Thank God for them. Some of them have given up their lives for us. There is no greater love than that, he said. Now what happened, people, on that cross? When God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Think about this for a moment. As Adam sinned, that separated him from God. When God made him who knew no sin to be sin, the humanity of Jesus was separated from God. And that's when he cried out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? God allowed Jesus to suffer that primordial fear. The Apostles' Creed said he descended into hell. That's really kind of a misunderstanding. It wasn't the destiny. It was the separation. There is nothing more frightening to be totally isolated, abandoned, and alone. And that's why he cried out in agony. And the humanity of Jesus suffered death for you and me. All the sins of the world fell upon him at that time. Now this would be the greatest tragedy in the history of the world if all we knew was Good Friday. But today is Resurrection Sunday. Jesus said, I'm the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. He will live spiritually even if he dies physically. It's Easter. He's arisen. The King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, Almighty God, is alive. More important to you and me, he's our Father. He's our friend. And I love him. It's because of that life that you and I are new creations in Christ. Old things have passed away, all things have become new. As many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. And with that we cry out, Abba, Father. This is the greatest time to be alive. It could be possible that we could see the second coming of Christ in our lifetime. The real issue then is, what manner of man are we to be? Do you have that life? Is the Holy Spirit bearing witness with your spirit that you're a child of God? Paul says, test yourself to see whether the Spirit of God is within you, lest you fail the test. You want to get through this coronavirus? 
You want to get beyond this fallen world? You want to be free from the evil one? Free from your past? Then become a new creation in Christ. And do it this Easter. Let's pray together. Father God, we love you. We thank you for the gift of life. We thank you for the forgiveness. You have not given us a spirit of fear, but you've given us life and power and love and a sound mind. And so, Father, we just celebrate this Easter with the new life that we have in Christ and pray for our country, our president, and those who look after us. Father, I just pray that you would divinely protect them and give them wisdom that we could, through this time, see a mighty revival of the church and the growth and the coming back to you. And I pray for Seed on the Hill, Lord, as they regain their meeting times together and come back together. May they do so in joy and fellowship. Thank you, Lord, for the body of Christ. We ask a blessing over their church and their work today. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. Praise the Lord. Thank you so much, Neil. It's so good to know that the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ sets us free from fear. That God broke the power that Satan had over death. And in that, he's brought us victory over the fear that so often comes to attack us in our lives. Praise the Lord. What a great message for this Resurrection Sunday. Thanks so much for being with us. Pray you have a great day with your family. But continue to remember that Jesus rose from the dead and set us free to bring us new life and to set us free from fear. God bless you. Happy Easter. He is risen. Hallelujah.